Hello, and thank you for being a member of the History of World War II podcast, episode 147, A Sharp Cutting End. Last time, as Dr. Marcel Petiot, the Butcher of Paris, was hiding out at the apartment of local house painter Georges Rideau, Commissioner Massou kept working his way around the edges, hoping to find someone who could lead him to the serial killer. In fact, Rideau's name had been given to the police, but due to an oversight, the man was not picked up for questioning. Still, Massou stuck to the basics and had officers re-question the neighbors of the townhouse. This helped them find out that during the previous summer, that of 1943, a truck company was hired to take dozens of still-full suitcases out of town. Further investigation confirmed that the truck drivers took the cases to the house of Albert Niehausen, the man who had slept in the inherited house of Marcel Petiot's wife. On March 30th, the police went to the house of Niehausen in Corseau-le-Querrière. The man was out, but his wife knew all about the travel bags. She told Massou that Maurice had brought them there last year, saying they belonged to Marcel, but he had been arrested by the Germans. It seems that the good brother Maurice had removed them from the townhouse just days after the Gestapo had taken Marcel away. The cases were taken back to Massou's office, and it was hoped that not only would evidence be found to implicate the doctor, but that the identity of the owners could be discovered. For Massou was willing to bet much that none of these people would ever be seen again. The next day, the last of March of 1944, the police found Albert Niehausen in Paris, as he was not in hiding, not knowing the authorities were searching for him. Though Massou did not get anything new from the man, he admitted that it was odd for his friend, the doctor, to have so many cases. Still, Niehausen stored them in his attic because Marcel asked him to. Also in late March, the Petio's previous housekeeper-slash-assistant, Genevieve Cooney, was found to the southwest of Paris. She confirmed that she had started working for Marcel in October of 1941, when her boss first started renovating 21 Rue Le Soir, and she had left in August of 1943, just after the disappearance of his last known victim. And though this was one hell of a coincidence, Massou could not connect her with the crimes, or the supposed escape agency the doctor had organized. Massou kept pounding the pavement, hoping to turn up more clues. Meanwhile, his officers went through the suitcases. Slowly, the identities of some of those killed became known. As the items in the cases were sorted and counted, the commissioner realized that Petio's killing spree probably ensnared even more people than he first assumed. He reminded himself to keep an open mind. Which was all well and good, but by the end of April, Massou had run down all of the clues he had generated thus far. After that, the trail, as they say, went cold. 
And though the people of Paris were consumed with the Petiot affair, and they would be again in the future, most now looked outside of Paris, as the Soviet forces were inflicting massive casualties on the Third Reich, which was matched by the Allied effort on the morning of June 6, 1944, that saw the landing of almost 200,000 troops at Normandy. Now the people of France had something more than distraction. They had hope. The trail for Petiot was cold, but Commissioner Massou was kept busy by all the phone, letters, and personally delivered sightings of the Butcher of Paris. One such witness, named Charles Rowland, told Massou a fantastical tale of himself and the missing man. They had sold drugs, worked with the Nazis, even had a menage a trois. Massou believed none of it, but when he needed to question Roland again, it seemed the man had disappeared off the face of the earth. Hopefully, he had not met up with one of Petio's injections. By late July of 1944, the Allies had penetrated the German defensive line in the northwest. Monte was making his way east, and General Patton and his Third Army were already to the southeast of Paris. But should one of the Allied wings turn and liberate the capital? That was the question. De Gaulle wanted it so to make sure the communists there did not get a toehold. But Eisenhower did not, for it served no strategic purpose. The French leader also used the excuse that the area above Paris was where Hitler's V-1 flying bombs were being launched from. But again, the Americans were obsessed with knocking Germany out of the war ASAP. There was still Japan to contend with. Soon, with the Allies getting close, the workers of Paris went on strike, while the communists made plans. De Gaulle reached France in mid-August, but Hitler ordered that explosives be attached to all the major buildings of Paris. The race for the City of Lights was on. Eventually, Eisenhower gave in to the stubborn de Gaulle, and the men of the infamous General Leclerc entered Paris on August 24th. When Hitler found out he wanted the V-1 rockets, which were first meant to gain revenge on the British, now to be turned on Paris. Still, Paris was freed, and the people celebrated. Commissioner Massou went on with his work through this chaos. Back in July, several witnesses were released, as Massou could not tie them closely enough to the case. The actor, the hairdresser, were let go, as was Petio's wife, but only provisionally. While the commissioner waited for a break, he continued working on identifying the victims of the good doctor. By August, 54 names had been uncovered. Oh, Maurice, the brother? He remained in jail. With the trail cold and Massou having nothing to lose, he tried one of the oldest tricks in the book, which should have not worked. Pulling out the outrageous testimony of Charles Rowland, Massou had some of the details 
especially the one about a threesome with Roland and a prostitute, leaked in September. Just days later, a letter claiming to be from Marcel Petio himself was delivered to an editor's office. When the handwriting was compared to some of Marcel's older documents, it was confirmed. He was the author of the letter. Now, this ploy should not have led to such a response, but the egos of gods and men are such fragile things. In his letter, Petio clarified the many mistakes of the article and reminded all he demanded that this be published that he had been a member of the resistance and all his liquidations had been of Germans or collaborators. Massou was equal parts thrilled and relieved, for few police thought he was still alive at this time. Moreover, the letter had been mailed from within the capital. The search for Marcel was renewed, but this time elements of the resistance and local militia joined in. The grounds of Paris were covered as never before. Indeed, the French world was looking for this man, which led to the following. On October 31, 1944, a man arrived at the saint mandé Tourelle railway station. He was in a khaki uniform. Nothing unusual about that. He had on a FFI, or French Forces of the Interior, armband, indicating his association with the resistance, and sported a thick beard. At 10.45 a.m., he readied to board the train when a man approached him and asked for the time. As the bearded man looked down at his watch, the stranger, a resistance man and former police officer, and three other men rushed the confused man and bound him. Dr. Marcel Petiot, after seven months and twenty days, was in custody. When Petiot was searched, it was found that he was going to make his way to Indochina, to work as a doctor there for the French intelligence service. France was trying to retake the country back from the Japanese and those Viet Minh locals who wanted independence. As a war was brewing there, doctors were certainly going to be needed. Ironically, Commissioner Massou was not a part of the arrest. He himself had been caught up in a post-liberation purge, as were a thousand other police officers. He had been arrested back in August. Disgraced and humiliated, Massou would attempt suicide by cutting his own wrists in December. But he was rushed to a hospital and saved, that is, for his trial. Yet, in April of 1945, when Massou's turn came, he was cleared of all charges. Returning to police work, he retired in 1947. As for Marcel Petiot, it will come as no surprise that when the questioning started, he was arrogant. As a doctor, as a man of the resistance, and, somewhat surprisingly, as a supposed communist, whose only concern was for the people. But the interrogators were unimpressed. Still, Petiot talked and talked and talked of all his heroic work with the resistance and that he had personally killed 63 people. 
which was a part of the reason why he had been arrested, tortured, and held for eight months by the Gestapo. When he was released, he said, he went home to Usair to regain his composure. Only then did he return to Paris and to his townhouse. And to his horror, he discovered the mutilated bodies. Only later would Petiot be questioned by Lucien Penot, Massou's successor. Standing beside Petiot was his lawyer from 1942, René Floriot, who had helped him out of several drug-selling charges. The man was known as a demon for detail. Moreover, Petiot, a man known for being proud, obsessed with cutting corners and demanding absolute loyalty, used all his knowledge of the law from his previous arrests, the crime books he read, information gained from working indirectly with the resistance, to attempt to weave a web so convoluted that the coming prosecutor would be left speechless. Namely, that the relatively fresh corpses were put there by the Germans while he was in jail, and as he could not remove the bodies without being noticed, he ordered the quicklime to get rid of them. But this process was too slow, so he was forced to cut up the bodies into pieces, and he did the best he could, not knowing of the best way to do such a thing. As for his attorney, René Floriot, he took advantage that Marcel had been committed to an asylum after the Great War. Clearly, the man was unstable, and if that was the case, then Petiot could not be held responsible for his actions. The lawyer had a backup plan. It didn't help that the prosecutor, whose job it was to gather information, was the young Galet on his first major case, nor that he suffered from migraines. But it didn't help the accused, as he and his lawyer were arrogant beyond belief, either. When Galet would suffer pain, Floriot would remind his nemesis that there was a doctor nearby, to which Petiot would laugh and ask, Would you like an injection? The prosecutor asked Petiot about his time with the resistance, and here the man hurt himself as much as he helped himself. Some things he knew, others, like more basic information that should have been obvious to someone who had lived in the world of the resistance, he could only guess at, or answer badly. Three psychiatrists were brought in to evaluate Petiot, but here the accused was even more arrogant than he had been with the police and the prosecutor. Their summation was that Marcel was intelligent, well-read in the world of mental disorders, but as someone who was completely amoral, used that knowledge to get out of trouble that his actions had put him in, and that he should be held accountable for his actions. As for the team investigating Petio's resistance claims, they returned the verdict that he was not, at any time, in serious contact with any resistance organization whatsoever. As things were not looking good for Petio, he decided, in his typical way, to go on the offensive. At the end of October 1945, with his trial approaching, he declared he would answer no more questions. 
As for what he had to say, that could wait to be made public in his trial. After all, the prosecution had 50 kilos worth of evidence against Marcel. As for all the others, his wife, his brother, his contacts, they were all released. But should Marcel be found guilty, they would be so too, in the court of public opinion by association. And so, on March 18, 1946, Dr. Petiot's trial, where he was accused of killing 27 people, began. And it began with an air of opening night at the theater. As all sat down along the back wall of the courtroom were piled high all the suitcases and belongings of those 27 people. The president of the tribunal was Marcel Lesser. With him were two magistrates. Per French law, Lesser would conduct the preliminary questioning. The all-male seven-member jury waited. Advocate General Pierre Dupin would be the prosecuting attorney, as no one else wanted the job. Even his predecessor had resigned in order to avoid this. René Floriot was defending. Dr. Petiot was let in at 1.50 p.m. He smiled at the jury, but what he could not hide was his hooded, dark, intimidating eyes. The indictment was read out, and it was more than 20 typed pages. Before the reading was done, however, Petiot already looked bored. The game had begun. Now, President of the Tribunal Lesser got underway, giving a short bio of the defendant. But as French law allows for many interruptions by several different people, the trial quickly became a circus. Most of the laughs were generated by the arrogant Dr. Petiot. President Lesser was still early in his career and was quickly put ill at ease. Prosecutor Dupin tried to bring some order to the trial when Petiot yelled at him enraged. But then he composed himself and went back to his body humor and charming arrogance. But then the defendant stated again that it was the Germans who put the bodies in his townhouse to get back at him for being in the resistance. But when he was cross-examined by someone with resistance knowledge, Petiot faltered. Thus enraged, he exclaimed to the man questioning him, You, defender of Jews and traitors! And the audience booed the questioner, as they were clearly on Petiot's side. The first day came to a close. The second day of the trial was even less calm. As the questions remained about Petio's time with the resistance, he would again stumble and then scream, defender of Jews, or break down in sobs. That is, when he thought of all the good French people that had died for the cause. Again, the audience was moved by his passion. After a short recess, the questions turned to some of the earliest victims, but Petiot parried nicely, except for when he didn't. Then his rage would manifest itself on his face, and he would kick hard at the stand. When the day was over, President Lesser was quoted as calling Petiot 
a demon, a monster, a murderer. If Petio's lawyer, Florio, was angling for a mistrial, he was well on his way. Two of the jurors had also gave their low opinion of Petio, so Florio had them replaced. When the third day opened, Lesser demanded less art, more matter, so that things could move quickly. And here, Lesser had erred. As the 27 victims were discussed, the jury did not have time to fully appreciate the monstrous acts done to them. Sympathy was not being aroused. Lesser was allowing Petiot to continue on with his show. When it came to the killing of Joe the Boxer and other collaborationists, Petio admitted to killing them for the resistance. He also admitted to killing several Jews only because they had been turned and were now German agents. When Petio's boisterous style got him into trouble, his lawyer Florio took over and distracted the room expertly. By the end of day three, the press had it that Petio was winning two to one. Now the trial, it was March 21st, moved to the calling of witnesses phase. But with Petio interrupting often, it was a time of more art than matter. Yet Massou's successor, Lucien Penault, did a credible job talking of the evidence at 21 Rue Le Soir. At that, Florio asked that they visit the townhouse. All were packed into cars. Petio did a decent job of explaining things away, but was at times very pale. One reporter noted that the defendant looked as if all he had done, the enormity of it, was coming back to him. Florio admitted to Petio that his plan had backfired. The townhouse had looked grim and terrifying, all the while the jury constantly glanced at the defendant. The next day, several police officers were questioned, even Massou, with his wrists in bandages. But such was Florio's work, the defense scored more points than the accusers. The day after that, the trial saw the prosecution bring forward family members of those who had disappeared after making arrangements with Dr. Petio. But because these people were gone and could not be questioned themselves, Florio had an easy enough time saying that their escape had been successful. And though the war was over, being in a German enclave in Argentina, they wanted to remain hidden. On March 26th, Dr. Albert Paul of the Institute was questioned. Though he enthralled the large audience with details of how the bodies were cut up, nothing he said directly tied Petio to the murders. Also, because of the decay, the time of death could not be guessed at, nor the cause of death. Again, Dr. Paul stated that there were no bullet holes or fractured skulls. Still, Dr. Paul gave his opinion that Dr. Petio was the killer. But Florio reminded the jury this was his opinion. The psychiatrists who had examined Petio were questioned next. The crowd wanted to hear that he was a monster, but that is not what the experts said. And in so doing, 
lost their support. To them, Petio was a cold, calculating, amoral scamp who knew enough medicine and psychiatry to help others when it helped him and to fake issues when he was cornered. But as these characterizations were not a direct link to the killings, the defense made that point obvious to the jury. Overall, Petio was winning if the trial could be viewed as a soccer match. Points were regularly scored against the accusers. But then came several witnesses who had worked with the resistance, and they had never heard of Petio, any of his aliases, or could explain that if he was a member of the resistance, why the Germans would let him go at any price. The game tilted back to being even. On March 27th, the prosecution brought forth all of their witnesses, such as they were. The hairdresser and actor, the brother Maurice, and Petio's oldest friend, René Nézondé. But here, the defendant was not helped. Maurice said that his brother was sick and needed help. Nézondet called Petio a monster, and further, that the Nazi uniforms found at the townhouse could either vindicate the doctor or prove that he was truly in cahoots with the enemy. It was not a good day for the defense, and on that note, the prosecution rested. When the defendant's team began calling witnesses, Florio took the circus-like atmosphere to new heights. The audience, for the most part, loved it. Testimonies were shredded, witnesses were soon stammering, the lack of real witnesses for the prosecution was brought up, and Petio shouted, How many witnesses does that make whom you haven't been able to produce? Did you murder them? At one point, Petio told the guard standing behind him, I forbid you to use two, the informal tone, with me. And then the defendant yelled at the guard, if you will excuse my French, screw you, but he used a different word. A mistrial seemed to be in Petio's future. During the third and final week, fewer people were coming to the trial. Many had made up their minds and so left the drama to return to their daily lives. The question was, had Florio done his job by showing that Petio, a resistance man, supposedly, had killed only Germans and French traitors. The prosecution gave its closing statements and reiterated that Petio was a cold killer, ruining lives in one of France's darkest periods, all for money. This called for the death penalty. On April 4th, the 16th and last day of the trial, the room was once again packed. The prosecution justified its desire for the death penalty, that Jews and women were the majority of the victims, that Petio had tricked them into bringing large amounts of cash and jewelry, and then killed them. At 3 p.m., Florio began his final plea. The press, he said, had lied about his client, already telling the world that he was guilty that the occupation-controlled press would not release any of Petio's resistance work, that the police had botched their investigation 
from the beginning and try to cover up their mistakes by going after Petiot, though the evidence did not support it. That some of the prosecution's own witnesses testified to Petiot's anti-German stance, that he had helped with forged documents risking his own life, some Frenchmen to escape German labor camps. As the lawyer went on for six hours, he attempted to punch holes in the testimony of every witness, of every fact, and only then did he turn to the jury. I commend Petio to your hands. With this, the room erupted in applause. The jury was given a list of 135 yes or no questions. This broke down to five questions for each of the 27 alleged victims. Questions like, was Petio guilty of the willful death of, enter name here, or was there malice aforethought? It would take a two-thirds majority of these to find the defendant guilty or not for each victim. At 11.50 that night, two hours and 15 minutes later, the jury had reached its verdict. That was barely enough time to actually read all 135 questions. The defense was confident. The questions were read out and collectively answered. Dr. Marcel Petiot was found guilty of 26 of the 27 charges. He would die by guillotine. Florio immediately filed for an appeal. Still, the executioner, it was an hereditary position, was ordered to prepare the machine. Before the sun rose on May 25, 1946, the guillotine was set up in the courtyard of the prison where Petiot was at. His appeal had been rejected by the criminal chamber of the Court of Appeals. Petiot was collected at 4.45 a.m. When a representative of the state looked at the man, he said, Petiot, have courage. The doctor cursed him. After writing a letter to his son and wife, the officials gathered around him. Recognizing Gallet, who had gathered evidence and had the migraines during his work, Petio again offered him an injection with a smile. Petio was asked if he had any final words. No. Dr. Paul would write that as they walked, Petio's words and movements were relaxed and graceful. When out in the courtyard, Petio smiled at his executioner as if the game was finally over. At 5.05 a.m., the butcher of Paris's head landed in the waiting wicker basket. In 1952, 21 Rue Le Soir was purchased and torn down, stone by stone.